Welcome to the Yaxterra Podcast. I'm Tom Peck. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. My guest for this edition of the podcast is John Spencer, founder and president of the Space Tourism Society. John, thank you for joining us on the program. Happy to be here. You guys are doing a great job. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate the the nice words. Uh, let's talk about your background first, just a little bit. How did you get involved in space tourism and the commercial space industry? I've always been a, a designer. I'm an architect by training. So mm-hmm. I've always liked space and uh, science. And I was 13 years old when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. So I was very influenced by that in that time period, Star Trek, the TV show and the movie 2001, and just loved the fact that we were exploring. I'm kind of an explorer myself and what I call the design frontier. So that's how I became interested in it. And when I started my master's program in architecture, uh, the school started, we we're gonna design a space colony. Okay. I go, what is a space colony? And from then on, I was hooked where I, I figured I could connect my architectural design background and interest with space and science and become an outer space architect. And I've been doing that ever since. That, that started in uh, 1978. We have kind of similar timelines. I was 11 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. I was at yeah. summer camp and got to stay up late in the director's quarters watching on a tiny little TV. So it was a, it, it was a very similar experience probably to, to what you had. That's great. It's great when you're young and influenced and you have a whole lifetime to do things. And one of the things that was I'm very happy about is in the early 80s, I started to work with Buzz Aldrin, you know, the second mm-hmm. fellow to walk on the moon. Mm-hmm. I've become close friends and we've been working on many, many design and engineering and other kind of projects and movies and TV shows since then. So he's a very creative guy. But as a kid, I never thought I'd meet an astronaut, let alone work with one. Well, in from uh, from my little county in Indiana where I grew up, it was where uh, Gus Grissom grew up down in Mitchell, and Ken Bowersox was about three years ahead of me in high school. So we have wow. a, we have an astronaut history in Lawrence right. County, Indiana. You've got a couple of projects that are in the works, and I want to get to both of them today. But let's start with the Space Tourism Society. What was the genesis of that organization? In 1982, I realized, having started to study space that space tourism was gonna become eventually the biggest business in space, the most interesting business. Space sports is gonna complement that. And that there were no space organizations around on space tourism, so I decided to start one. I'm based here in uh, Los Angeles where people are kind of more open to ideas. And of course, between the entertainment industry and the aerospace industry, we were able to have a lot of buy-in even in those early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that space tourism would be good. So we started the Space Tourism Society and we just celebrated our 25th anniversary at our Space Tourism Conference at the end of April. So who's involved in the Space Tourism Society? Who, who makes up the membership? Just a huge wide variety of people from all walks of life. And that's uh, on purpose because the focus of space tourism is all about experiences. And our goal is we're not rocket people. We have other friends who do all that. Our goal is 
to explore and develop ideas and designs for what you do when you're in space. And how do you make that a wonderful life-changing experience? So the range of people, whether they're designers, artists, bankers, uh, musicians, people developing food for space, it's across the whole spectrum and getting wider and wider. And from the early days of 82, I modeled the space tourism industry after the cruise line industry. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent model from a business standpoint. You know, cruise ships are big technical devices that take people out into an extreme environment. They have fun, they pay money, and they come back. Uh, in the mid-90s, I started developing my concept for uh, orbital super yachting. Okay. Modeled after ocean-going super yachts. And I can mm -hmm. get into that a little bit later because... One of my core goals and all my projects support this effort is establishing the space yachting industry and community. Uh, so we can talk about that. But we have a wide range of people and very international too. At one time in the early days of this, we had 25 chapters of the Space Tourism Society all around the world. That faded a little bit when we had that lull after the shuttle retired and there was no space tourists going into space for almost a decade. But that's resurging now. We're getting new chapters growing. Uh, our Space Tourism Conference brings people together. And it's just an amazing time right now. You've got some very influential people in the industry on your board as well. I was noticing you mentioned Buzz Aldrin. Peter, Peter Diamandis comes to mind sure. as being on your board. How did you recruit those people or did they come to you and say, we want to be involved? In the early days, we were this band of people out there promoting private space enterprise. Mm -hmm. And at that time, in the early 80s, people laughed at that whole concept because we were still deep in the Cold War era. We were, aerospace was aerospace. And nobody thought the scruffy young people running around talking about space resorts and moon bases mm -hmm. uh, were real people. So we, we had this kind of band of brothers and sisters from a whole walk of stuff. We grew up together. Uh, Peter and I grew up together in a lot of different projects and ventures and so forth. So uh, people, excuse the expression, gravitate, although we're zero gravity, to uh, <laughs> the Space Tourism Society once they hear about it because there's a lot of like-minded people. We're kind of open and cool and welcoming, and we want to know what you think. We really do. So what are some of the programs and events that the Space Tourism Society offers? Well, besides our chapters, we have what we're calling the Space Tourism Industry Report. The first one will be published at the end of this year, mm. which looks at the overview specifically at the industry from the experiential standpoint. And let me just take a moment and talk about the breadth of the industry. We have a large view of this space experience industry. And we have this triangle we always show people that at the apex is real space experiences. Right. Where you're going to low Earth orbit or you're going to orbit or to around the moon or to the moon, for example. On one end of the triangle is Earth-based space experiences. Right. Going to Science Center, the National Space Museum, Space Camp, uh, space theme parks and so forth. On the opposite end of that, that triangle is media, space media. So movies, TV, games, uh, virtual worlds and all that. Mm -hmm. And there's a synergy between those three core mediums that people experience space, the real space, earth-based simulation, and media. And that synergy enhances all three of those main mediums. And then we have another triangle that talks about how you can go from a young person through life as you become more affluent to ever increasingly real space experience. For example, read a book or go to a museum, you know, go to space camp, have a zero gravity flight. 
uh, do a basically suborbital flight, an orbital and then lunar flight. So as you go through life, you can have ever increasingly real space experiences. So that means this industry has longevity, a scalability, an excitement, a sex appeal to it, where we're garnering more and more corporate sponsors to help us. And our main program right now is the Space Tourism Conference, which we just hosted mm -hmm. online last April, April 27th and 28th. And that is a conference specifically focused on the space tourism industry and experience. That's why it's called the Space Tourism Conference. Thanks. Hard to admit that one. <laughs> uh, and the first uh, conference we did over two days, had to be virtual. We had three sessions a day and we covered finance and design and the meaning of it, the entertainment industry, other subjects, because they all relate uh, together. And our job is to bring people from these different industries together and mix them up so they can exchange ideas and knowledge and we can push everything forward. So next year, we will have an in-person space tourism conference here in LA at one of the large hotels by LAX. For decades, we've always done major space events at one of the big hotels mm -hmm. by LAX so people can fly in and do an event and, and leave. So we're very excited about growing the space tourism conference and eventually adding the expo. But in the conference, we have fashion shows with the runways, we're giving a, we have a big award show, Space Tourism Ministry Award Show. It's be our third one next year. So it's a, a great gathering place and a place of ideas and a place of networking and a place to push it all forward. I'll put it on my calendar. Hopefully we can attend. <laughs> That'd be I, a lot I of fun. I hope you do. Love to. So how do you get people then enthusiastic about space tourism? Because most people see space tourism as you buy an expensive ticket and you get on some kind of a, of a rocket and you go experience space. The cost of that is obviously very high. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how do you get people enthusiastic about space tourism and some of these other venues that you've talked about? Well, most people are internally excited about space and want to have a space experience themselves or even careers in space. Mm -hmm. And one of the big areas we help people with is, in fact, careers in space. Now, most people can't afford $50 million to take a trip to the International Space Station for a week. Right. And when they ask me, I can't afford that. I say, well, think about a career in space and work in space. Mm -hmm. People will eventually be working in space at the orbital super yachts, eventually downline orbital cruise ships, lunar resorts, and you need a wide variety of people to people those facilities. Sure. They're all spaceships, even a moon base is essentially a spaceship on the ground. So there's gonna be a wide need for cooks and people to manage the space facilities, to design the space facilities, to maintain them, to build them, to operate them. So the idea that people can go to space as a part of a career, excites a lot of people, which attracts them to our events and activities because they meet other people and they learn about it. So then what is the economic impact of Earth-based space tourism, the museums and, and all of these things that people can actually go and, and at least have a little taste of that experience? That's a great question. And it turns out when you look at the National Space Museum and NASA centers and a few other facilities just in the United States, Mm -hmm. Over 19 million people a year physically get up and go specifically to these space facilities. Now, over 100 million people a year go to science centers and planetariums just in the United States. Yeah. It's triple that around the world. Now, for comparison, both of the Universal Studios uh, tour facilities, one in Los Angeles and one in uh, Florida, 
have about 19.9 million annual visitors. So we're fairly close to matching up what goes to both of the Universal Studios. Now that generates hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, people going places to hotels and food and paying admission. And when you count IMAX theaters, there's over a thousand around the world. More than 50% of their films are space films because of the majesty and the the beauty of all that kind of stuff. Um, So there's a whole industry of space experiences on earth that people have and learn about it. And a lot of these facilities, particularly the science centers, are families going there. So the young kids are getting experience at these science centers and there's field trips there all the time from the schools. So there's a a lot of connection places where we can get these really interesting, exciting ideas of yachting in space, sports in space, and that you could work in space someday. So we're reaching out and know a lot of these organizations. I know my wife and I are annual pass holders at the uh, Kennedy Space Center down in, in Cocoa. And the first time I walked in there and they opened the doors and there was Atlantis, it was breathtaking. It is. And Kennedy is wonderful for so many reasons, the Kennedy Space Center and Visitor Center. Uh, we're fortunate to have the Endeavor Space Shuttle here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. at the California Science Center, which is a little bit south of downtown Los Angeles across from USC, University of Southern California. They're about finished raising a quarter billion dollars to build this tall building. They're going to take the Endeavor and raise it up vertically. The external tank, they have a real external tank, Mm -hmm. the only one in existence, and real rocket, solid rocket boosters. So there's going to be a real stack, they call it, with the shuttle vertical within the next three to four years that you can actually see. It's really impressive. Um, We always have also have Yuri's Night currently in the Mm -hmm. space shuttle pavilion at the California Science Center. So you can hang out with 800 of your friends at a time and have a really nice party with the space shuttle. Talk about the regional, uh, the regional chapters of the Space Tourism Society just a little bit. What is their function or how do you envision their function as you get them reformulated and stood back up? Really, it's a social gathering of like-minded people interested in space in general, uh, the positive future for humanity as we move outward, careers in space, uh, and just events. We always encourage our chapters to hold events at their local science center or planetarium or somewhere that has that type of ambiance uh, to it. Mm-hmm. So they get together, most of the time it's young people, and a lot of times they've been college students that start chapters at universities or colleges. Uh, and it's a social meeting gathering. And then we provide them with background information. Sometimes if they have a big group, I'll do a presentation, uh, encourage people to have these kind of careers. Uh, so we want to populate that around the world. And it's fascinating. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, in uh, England or United States or Japan or Australia. There's a common human interest in exploration and new experiences and doing something novel and exciting. Plus, it's always fun to talk about at parties. So <laughs> that works out pretty good. It's always a good conversation starter. You're listening to the Xterra podcast. I'm Tom Patton, and my guest is John Spencer, founder and president of the Space Tourism Society. John, let's move on to a couple of these other projects, and I'm going to start with Mars World. What's that? Sure. Well, my career has had a paralleling track of working as a space ar- outer space architect, designing real space projects, contracts with NASA, private space enterprise, developing ideas for new ventures in real space. 
in parallel to Earth-based space architecture and design of theme parks, theme resorts, visitor centers. I also do a lot of consulting uh, on movies and TV uh, shows that are space future oriented. And I'm part of a group called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And we're part of the National Academy of Sciences. And our goal is to improve uh, the quality of science and media projects. So movie producers, directors come to the exchange, if it's biology, linguistics, space stuff, volcanoes, whatever, mm. and the exchange connects them to experts in those areas so the science is better. Now, Mars World is uh, one of my large-scale real estate projects. I've been designing and building projects around the world that are space-themed. My first project, we got about $200 million with Mitsubishi, and we built a project in the south part of Japan called Space World. Okay. Believe it or not, we had a full-scale space shuttle with the tank and the whole thing, but it was mm -hmm. uh, all uh, simulated stuff, all made out of steel. So I've gotten about over $300 million over the years invested in my original concepts and ideas and stuff. So I'm actually a real estate developer, designer, kind of mini investment banker mm -hmm. that, because we raise money and raising money is a whole thing in itself, a whole ecosystem. Yeah. It's exciting, it's interesting, it's like a treasure hunt. So a number of years ago, I decided, with a friend that I wanted to do a larger project, our projects are using the hundreds of millions, whatever, and we decided, eh, let's just focus on multi-billion dollar projects. There's interesting, it's not more so, and there's lots of money out there. And you don't raise money for the multi-billion dollar projects, you get your investment bankers or your other investment groups to just prioritize using it for your stuff. So Mars World is a proposed $2 billion large-scale mixed-use entertainment project, all inside a giant dome, where you get to visit a city of the future on Mars and interact with the future, which is the main theme, the site location Mars is the exotic location. Also, mm -hmm. we're, we all know trademark Mars worlds we're building up into a major global trademark and so forth. And our first site is in Las Vegas, but mm -hmm. we've been going to China, talking to China, we're gonna be doing Saudi Arabia, those kind of things. So. These are usually five-year-long projects when you get the initial go for it for the design, development, construction, training, and so forth. So we hope to build Mars World in Las Vegas, in Orlando, and other places around the world. It's designed for about 7 million annual visitors per year. Mm -hmm. And it has two parts, where you're in space in the future and the Earth space part, which is your transition, arrival transition to Mars and the future. And that's a science center and conference center and all those kind of things mixed together. So it's real space and space entertainment, and then wild space entertainment, the mm -hmm. future on Mars. And the big thing is interacting with the Martians, which are our cast members, mm -hmm. actors and actresses who portray the very stylish, really good looking tall Martians. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about when I first noticed that in the information that you sent me, and it was in in. Las, outside Las Vegas. Did you select that location because there's kind of a Mars analog to the to the Nevada desert? No. Okay. <laughs> there's a whole genesis of how this happened, uh, which I won't get into, but it was more just sex, drugs, rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And what can you do that space themed for one of the major casino guys? And we decided since we came up with something so good, we're going to do it ourselves. So it really, Las Vegas is the perfect place because it has 42 million annual visitors. 22% uh, of that's refreshed people that have never been to Vegas before the first time. Right. There's lots of land in the area. They, mm -hmm. People want to do different, unique kind of things. Uh, the city loves new development projects so we can get bonds we, for infrastructure. There's a lot of 
reasons why Las Vegas uh, is an ideal location for it. It's only an hour flight from Los Angeles too. Right. So it's, it's a really good location. And there are some, back to your question, analogies that it waters a big problem mm -hmm. in the middle of a desert. It gets really hot and really cold. Uh, that's why we're all indoors inside of this huge dome, because this is really called an experience park. I actually coined that term in the mid nineties mm -hmm. because it's very experiential, not ride so much as places and activities and things to interact with uh, not only our Martian characters, but other people too. So Las Vegas is a really good location. So let's talk a little bit about your, your space yacht, your, your cruise sure. ship. What, what's that project about? Well, I realized um, everything comes down to how do you finance something? So I have ideas and I want to finance them. So I learned how to do that. And I realized uh, in the mid nineties that eventually there will be orbital cruise ships. So that might be 20, 30 years from now. What could happen earlier and why? So cruise ships are built to do a general funding, you know, get uh, revenue and profit and profit, all that kind of stuff. But if you look at ocean yachts, particularly the super yachts, they operate in an entirely different system. They're mm -hmm. not cash profit oriented. They're social profit oriented. They exist for pride, prestige, social standing, branding, gifting, all of those kind of things. And these mega yachts, some of them, there are four in the ocean right now that cost $1 billion plus to design and build. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So these are owned by the richest corporation, richest families, richest individuals in the world. But once you have a super yacht, and even if it's a giant mega yacht, the, the next guy is going to have a bigger one with more right. toys, helicopters, submarines, artwork, all that kind of stuff. So what's new, what's different? Well, I'm pitching the idea of an orbital super yacht modeled after Paul Allen's super, ocean super yacht mm -hmm. that you could be the first person ever to own and operate an orbital super yacht. And so it's real, I've designed a real spaceship that is a yacht. It's a very beautiful ship on purpose and so forth. And to people with that kind of magnitude of ego and social standing and wanting to beat out everybody else, the idea you're Neil Armstrong of orbital super yachting is pretty uh, interesting. And I, I deal with billionaires because of investment stuff we do. So I'm, my main goal with all my projects, even the Space Tourism Society, is to establish the space yachting industry and community and to build that into a vibrant orbital and eventually going around the moon and got racing like the America's Cup. So we'll need lots of people to assemble and man and operate these things. There's whole stories about chefs on super yachts and how the billionaires steal each other's chefs because they want the finest food. But we, same thing is going to happen now. If you have yachts, you have to have a yacht club in orbit to mm -hmm. do the servicing. You have to have a space guard service like the Coast Guard service. So you have to have a reason for an infrastructure to grow on this area. And when you take the profit, cash profit away, and you add the social profit, the economic dynamics change dramatically, and this will happen. And that's my job is to guide this into reality. You've mentioned space sports a couple of times. What do you mean by space sports other than, than um, orbital yacht racing? Well, we've already had golfing on the moon. Well, there's Alan that. Shepard, Apollo 14. We've had people skydive from the at 100,000 feet up. Mm -hmm. Someone is eventually going to skydive for low Earth orbit. Uh, the yacht racing around the moon. Then eventually we have larger facilities in space with fairly good sized volumes. 
Uh, you'll have zero gravity basketball, uh, also dancing in zero gravity. So all the arts are going to slowly migrate off world to this zero gravity or low gravity environment. And then eventually we're going to have uh, dune buggy racing on the moon, for example. Okay. Uh, so if you, what I like doing is taking earth-based existing industries like cruise line, yachting, uh, sports racing, and so forth, and migrate them to space. How do they change physically because of the unique environment, how we access space and operate there? But for the same reason they exist on Earth, they can exist off world in a lot of ways, refresh their, themselves for something new and dynamic and exciting. Designers love this because it's a whole design frontier to explore. Let's bring that a little bit back down to earth and talk about how space tourism fix, fits into the spectrum of the new space economy. It's uh, right now, well, for Earth-based, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people that visit science centers or National Space Museum mm -hmm. and so forth, and people seeing space movies and science fiction and all that kind of stuff. So there's an existing economy uh, of space stuff that's been around since the early 60s and so forth. Right. And, and all the money sp uh, spent on space is actually spent down here on Earth, right? Right. Uh, even the guys that order pizza from the space station, what they've done with SpaceX, you know, they sent their credit card to the place down on Earth. Right. So when you imagine 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we have to look at distance and work towards that. Mm -hmm. We can see the space economy growing. For example, Morgan Stanley, UBS, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, they're all done studies on where the space economy can go. And some of those are pretty impressive stuff. Uh, UBS says by 2030, space tourism itself should be about a $3 billion industry. Uh, by 2030, space travel, which includes point to point, you know, very fast going from New York to Japan, you know, in 45 minutes, right. probably going to be a $30 billion uh, industry. Uh, right now, SpaceX, according to Wall Street Journal, is valued at $30 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these groups are projecting that by 2040, a worldwide global space industry, counting everything, satellites, military, is going to be a $1.1 trillion industry. So the growth ramp for space is going to accelerate almost vertically because as cost comes down and access increases, more businesses are going to want to be involved, more countries are going to be involved. At our space tourism conference recently, we had a number of companies we talked to uh, who will participate next year, but our consumer companies, Procter & Gamble, MasterCard, a whole bunch of these groups who are just now nudging towards being involved and in learning about space and space enterprise, space tourism, and seeing it as possibilities for branding. Uh, Allstate has this wonderful TV commercial for prime time on a lunar rover, this kind of nice music, you know, right, going along. And, it's mm -hmm. wonderful and stuff. And there's lots of space uh, TV commercials. There's been six uh, Super Bowl commercials over the years that have been space themed. So companies are waking up that space is interesting. It projects something on the future, which means you're going to be around as a company in the future. Uh, young people find it fascinating. A lot of the people in advertising who do commercials find it fascinating just as people. So the industry is going to grow and grow and grow and diversify with new players and new ideas and new excitement. And it's worldwide. There are 60 countries that have some activities going on in space, whether they're involved with 
partnering to have a satellite go or they're involved with space station. And one of the things great with the space station, international space stations, we and the Russians, who are the main partners, get along quite well uh, for the space station. We built it together, we operate it together, and that's one of the opportunities for space is to go outward together. So that's a possibly the biggest social value of it. It gives us a perspective inward as we go outward. You have the overview effect, for example, but also we can do it uh, with multiple partners from around the world and people find it fascinating and they're proud to be involved with it. And now there's a, a Russian film crew that's getting ready to go to the International Space Station to shoot actually a commercial movie in space. Yes, there's actually a little uh, space movie race going on with Tom Cruise <laughs> wanting to go up uh, mm -hmm. with his producer, cameraman, director and do a segment for Mission Impossible 7. Uh, right. The Russians want to do that. They've already selected their actress to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other people I can't talk about right now because it's all quiet, quiet, but they want to beat those guys. Uh, okay. to be, do the first filming of a commercial movie segment on board the International Space Station. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, so we have a space movie race. Now, we haven't really talked about, and we're a little short on time, but I want to touch on the Axiom-1 mission that's coming up that will be the first basically private crew to visit the International Space Station. Um, as, as space travel gets more and more commonplace, is, is the interest going to continue to grow in this, in this sector? Well, it's not going to be commonplace for quite a while, mm -hmm. but over time, more and more people go, it's much like the airlines in the early days, it was pretty well rich people who dressed up very fancy to fly on airplanes. And of course, then it was very dangerous yeah. type stuff. And got good but, food. But uh, actually, <laughs> they got great food, champagne. Uh, the stewardesses are all dressed very nicely, the whole thing. So Axiom Space is a great company. We're friends with them. We're always mm -hmm. very impressed with what they're doing. They sold three tickets, 55 million each, to fly three people plus a pilot mm -hmm. uh, who used to command the International Space Station astronaut to the International Space Station to spend about 10 days on board that. Mm -hmm. There's the uh, Inspiration4 mission, which is supposed to launch this September in a Dragon capsule mm -hmm. with uh, four people that were chosen by this billionaire fellow to spend four days in space. Uh, and the proceeds from that are gonna be donated to St. Jude's uh, Children's Research Hospital, which is just a wonderful charity and so forth. Uh, there, are, there are people that are in the works right now are gonna do lunar flybys. There, yeah. they, the money's there. The, there's a competition between the Russians and SpaceX to be the first to do a lunar flyby. So you go around the moon and come right back. And most likely the next time we'll see a live earth rise will be through commercial ventures. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other stuff on the books going on. Uh, there are more companies wanting to do their own private space stations in competition with Axiom Space. So there's a whole thriving uh, space industry growing and wealthy individuals and companies are investing in this now because they see it as a future growth industry. What about the overall space economy? Look out 10 or 15 years and, and where do you see the, the business of commercial space? Well, there's all these major investment uh, analyst companies doing studies on exactly that same thing. And some of them are projecting rapid growth uh, on an international basis. Uh, Morgan Stanley, UBS Group, uh, they're forecasting by 2030, it'll be about a $20 billion space travel industry. That's not just space tourism, but point to point going from New York to Japan, 45 minutes, for example. 
Uh, other groups are projecting by 2040, the overall world space industry, this is commercial, military, uh, tourism, will be about a $1.1 trillion industry. Mm -hmm. uh, so these investment groups are looking at this as gross sector of high tech and high value, meaning it's prestigious, it's exciting. If you're part of the space world, people think you're special, which you are, and that you're gonna be around. So the potential is just enormous. And the fact that these investment analyst groups are analyzing the industry uh, is good and healthy because then they give guidance to the investment bankers and investment stuff and Wall Street, which increases confidence for investors on a wide range to invest in these companies. It turns out, you know, Virgin Galactic was the first space travel company to go public. Mm -hmm. you know, so they actually were selling stock and stuff. Right. Uh, and what's, what's fascinating is when I talk to people in the business world and the finance world, one of the key things I tell them is that the two richest men in the world right now, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, right. both started rocket companies and they're both dedicated to the development of space for all humankind. The and they both richest guys in the world. And they've both been relatively successful at it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Elon has done an amazing job. I'll never forget when he flew his Tesla on mm -hmm. a you know, Falcon Heavy, and here's the Tesla with the mannequin in it. Yeah. yeah. That was just great. It was also was like screw you, Boeing type thing. <laughs> <laughs> great backstories on all that. Absolutely. Uh, but Boeing's doing a good job with their Starliner. It's called a Starliner capsule. Mm -hmm. They're getting into the liner stuff. So, uh, so when you say the two richest guys in the world have rocket companies that are dedicated to space, the finance guys go, Hmm. hmm. Tell me more. And that's <laughs> what you want. We want them to ask you to tell them more. Absolutely. John, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being my guest today. And we'll look forward to following your projects and hopefully talking again in the future. Love to. And thank you for doing this. Enjoy it. John Spencer is founder and president of the Space Tourism Society, among other things. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Find us on the web at xterrajsc.com. And be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.